Welcome to Offline Thoughts, where I talk about online personalities, cultural events, and popular movements. I'm particularly interested in why people believe the things that they believe and how they came to hold those beliefs. So I'm super glad that you found the podcast, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So jumping right into it, today I'd like to talk about Princella the Queenmaker. And in case you haven't come across her before, she's a social commentator who talks a lot about male-female dynamics and specifically how men are the downfall of women. So she has a background in the military, she studied molecular cell biology and she also has extensive sales experience so I believe she sold cars and she has done a lot of door-to-door sales she's also the author of two books one is called the five components of love and the other is called 42 shades of men she's also a content creator and she has um, a podcast she's on youtube and she's also on tiktok Delving right into what her central beliefs are or what she, I guess, puts out to her followers, there are three main things or three main themes. The first is that men are natural born predators. The second is that men have no social intelligence. And the third is that men are incapable of love. So I'm going to look at those in turn. So on the first one, When Princella talks about men being natural-born predators, she points to the experiences of, of many women, and she says, if you look at many women, they have experienced either low-level sexual abuse or harassment, or at the other extreme level, they have experienced ex- some form of sexual violence from men. And if it isn't sexual in nature, they have also experienced physical abuse, so in for an example of that being domestic abuse, and if it isn't physical they have also experienced psychological abuse at the hands of men the reason why she says that it is a natural instinct in men or that their base way of being is being predatory is she says that really the only reason why the average man basically doesn't go out there physically sexually psychologically abusing women is because we have institutions that prevent them from doing so so we've got the justice system for example that prosecutes them and puts them in prison and if it isn't because of the the physical institutions like the justice system it's because of social norms so over time their base instincts essentially have been reined in by the social taboo that comes from being branded as a man who beats women or as a violator of women or as a sexual predator basically and because this social stigma carries ramifications to for example their earning capacity so if you have if you're on the sex offender registry then or register then it's very difficult for you to get a job or if you've been branded as a domestic abuser then your social circle becomes smaller or if you have a criminal record then again your capacity to earn a living or your capacity to sort of ingratiate yourself in many levels of society Im- immediately is diminished and you basically have to either not disclose that information or you have to work a whole lot harder to be accepted so she points to that fact as one of the key reasons reasons why the average man isn't just going around abusing women left right and center 
She also says that the pushback she gets from people when she makes that comment is undermined by something she believes we all believe. So what she says is, even if you contest the idea that men are natural born predators, then all you really have to ask yourself is, in an emergency situation where you have a child and you have to leave the child in the care of somebody you don't know well for whatever reason, she says that the chances that you leave that child with a man is literally next to zero. That in most circumstances, most women and men would not want to leave their child in the care of a stranger, of a strange man or a man that is no, no, not known to them. That they would much rather leave them in the care of women. And the reason she says that is that we all know, quote unquote, that that child is in a number of risks being left to a man that she doesn't know, whether that's physical abuse, psychological abuse, or sexual abuse. So in most circumstances, people would opt to leave that child with a woman. And that points to the fact that we understand that when we look at probabilities, that the chances are, the probabilities of that child experiencing harm, then the probabilities are much higher when it's left with a man versus when it's left with a woman. And so she says that no matter what we may say, we all fundamentally hold the same view. So that's the first point on how men are natural born predators. The second point that Princella makes and the second theme in her in the content that she puts out to her followers is that men have no social intelligence. And what she says is that intellectually they lack the capacity to assess situations in rational measured ways. And she says this is something that comes natural to women. So women will be able to suppress their feelings for the benefit of what's appropriate in that situation, in that scenario, and in that context. Whereas men will make rash decisions in that moment to satisfy to satisfy impulses or base needs, even if it comes at the expense of their own or their families or their loved ones' um, interests. And one of the key examples she points to is the is the degree to which men will compromise themselves and their livelihoods and the livelihoods of their families in pursuit of sex. So she says that when sex is dangled in front of them or there's a possibility of sex, they will take high risks that compromises their, their livelihoods, that compromises the security of their families, and also compromises the integrity of the relationship because they basically are unable to think in a... In, to exercise social intelligence and think that actually that's not appropriate or even if it feels good in the moment, then it's not good for me emotionally, psychologically, and it certainly isn't good for my partner or for my family. So because of this, she says that men make poor heads of households. So she says that men actually should be the ones that follow because they have no social intelligence and they lack impulse control. So actually it should be women that sit at the heads of households because they don't make such impulsive, um, destructive decisions in the spur of the moment. And on top of that, they are able to not make decisions based on what they want in the moment because they understand the, the ramifications that those decisions may have on themselves and their families. So that's the second point about men being lacking a, a certain level of self-awareness and a certain level of properly analyzing the situation and behaving accordingly. And then the final theme that 
that Princella talks about. And she talks about all kinds of things, obviously, on her podcast. But these are the three central themes that kind of come over, come up over and over again. And I think this last point is probably one that people would find the most shocking, although the first one as well is pretty shocking too. The third thing she talks about is how men are fundamentally and irreconcilably, I would say, incapable of love. And the reasons she gives for this are threefold. One, she says men are incapable of self-sacrifice. So she says that in most circumstances, what you, what you see in familial dynamics or romantic dynamics is that the woman is able to put the interests of the other people in front of her own wishes in order to make them happy. So for example, a mother will give up her career if it's necessary for the well-being of her children, or a woman, or a woman will make decisions in other arenas that are self-sacrificial in nature because that's the nature of her love because she understands that sacrificing her love means that the people that she loves are basically able to have a better quality of life or better access to resources um, or better or, or more likely just to be happy if she does so whereas Princella argues that in most circumstances, men never do this. The second thing she says is that men are incapable of love in the romantic context because they don't view women as complete self-actualized agency having beings. So what they see them as instead is is one, sexual objects, and two, resources. And when she talks about resources, she talks about resources in the sense that they view women as things they can extract nurturing from, love from, sex from, and also financial resources from, as her own personal experience would would, would kind of highlight. And because they see women as resources, it means that they're unable to have honest, intimate, relationships with women because they see them as something to be manipulated in order to get what they want. So she said that she says that they will present themselves as people they are not. They will show the woman what she wants to see in order to get sex from her or money from her or nurturing from her. And that in every aspect, they will manipulate the woman to make herself feel inferior or make her believe that the man is the prize in order for him to continue to extract those things from her. Whereas outside that manipulation, women likely would make different choices. So they're they're incapable of love because for love to be present, you have to see the person as a fully fledged human being, and you also have to have the capacity for self sacrifice and put their self and put their interests above yours when necessary. And because men are incapable of those two components, she says that fundamentally they're not able to give love in the way that women give love, or in a way that most people understand love to mean. Now, the first thing that you know, strikes me about Princella is when she's talking about all these things, you know, there's always levels of truths to what she's saying. So it's not that you hear, so it's very easy when you hear somebody who says something that's just completely inapplicable or completely not true or doesn't bear reality out to be dismissed out of hand. And those, in those circumstances, we really don't linger to hear what the person has to say further because they don't even meet the first threshold of of presenting information in a way that is plausible to us. 
and so we dismiss them out of hand. I would say Priscilla is not that person. And it's not that person because, again, like I said, she weaves in lots of things that the average person probably would agree, or at least the average woman probably would agree. And there are a number of those things that I'd like to talk about. The first the first thing I would, I, I would agree with is that, you know, we do live in a world where women are highly sexualized and treated as objects in many respects. So when you look at TV, when you look at films, when you look at advertisements, often it is women's bodies who are, that are used to sell those products. So you put them in front of expensive cars, you put them, you know, you put them in jewelry, you put them in clothes, you put them on fancy looking holidays. And basically people are much more likely to buy those things. In particular, men are much, much more stimulated to buy things when women are in the shot because they're, the advertisers basically are tapping into the subtext. And the subtext is that the man connects his sexual desire to the object that is being sold. So that's definitely true. The second, the second thing is that, you know, we do live in a really rapey culture where rapey things are normalized. So one of those things is when you look at films, particularly, you know, romantic comedies or just romantic films in general, there's this idea that, you know, there's like this idea that you can pursue or men can pursue a woman even in the face of multiple no's. So you'll have the trope that is a nerd, for example, in a high school movie, in a high school setting, who is pursuing somebody who is, quote unquote, way outside of his league. So maybe she's more popular and maybe she has a higher sort of social cachet. And basically because of that, because of that, she doesn't show him interest. I mean, that's what they position it as, but also just outside that, she's not interested in him. And usually the arc of the film is that, you know, she's go- he's going to pursue her until that no turns into a yes, or those no's turn into a yes. And maybe it'll involve him buffing out, you know, bulking out. So he'll go to the gym and he'll work out and he'll become, you know, buff, or he will change the way that he dresses, or he will attain money, or he will attain some kind of power. He will do something that transforms himself from the nerd to somebody that basically can get that woman to say yes. And the idea as well is tapping into the notion that the reason why the woman said no was because he wasn't in the right form or because he didn't have enough money or because he wasn't successful enough, even though it's probably just because he he didn't find, she didn't find him sexually attractive. So that, that character arc of perseverance, basically in the face of no being something that is really normalized, is pretty predatory because again, at the center of that is the idea that a woman saying no multiple, multiple times doesn't matter. That whose interest in that story is prioritized and centered is the the man's desire. So he wants her and it doesn't really matter what she wants. He's going to keep doing and saying and presenting himself and sh- and shape-shifting until basically she's either worn out or she's like somehow bamboozled or um, or brainwashed into seeing him in a different light. So the whole thing is pretty predatory when you really think about it. And then the final thing is that women are socialized to mule for men. So the way that love is presented to women is is that it's based on the idea of how much suffering you can absorb and absorb 
while having a smile on your face and still looking conventionally attractive, still being in shape, still looking good, or put another way, how much you can sac- how much you can sacrifice of yourself, your desires, your passions, your dreams in pursuit of somebody else's happiness. So often the good mom is presented as somebody who will basically do absolutely everything and where the 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 father's not is not held to the same standard, but her the quality of her motherhood is based on how much she can self-sacrifice. The quality of her love is based on how much she can sacrifice for her romantic relationship or on how forgiving she can be in the face of many transgressions. That's often how love is positioned. As long as in romantic relationships, the man basically has a period where he is repentful. It basically ex- excuses cheating and and neglect and also like low-key abuse as well. So, you know, they're really socialized to sort of suppress their own desires and also to act in ways that are not to their best advantage or to their to their interest because in some way they kind of are presenting love as being the ideal to to aspire to so these are some of the things that princella weaves into her analysis and i would definitely agree with all those with with those three points now beyond that point though things start to take a left and i'll look at the three themes that are presented and talk about why So on the first point about men being natural born predators, the first thing to note is obviously reality doesn't actually bear this out. So while it may be true that most sexual and physical violence is perpetrated by men, it's also equally not true that most men are perpetrators of physical and sexual violence, you know, like we have daily interaction with interactions with men and they're not predatory men you know we remember the bad cases so you remember the creepy security guy that followed you around the store you remember the weirdo guy at the club who like wouldn't take no for an answer but we are also discounting the dozens of men you probably met in that day who are just going about living their lives as you are you know being unproblematic so and on top of that you know simple maths is there's eight billion people in the world half of those eight billion is our our men and obviously we're not saying that four billion men are predators you know if that was the case the entire male population would be in prison so the reality just is that most men are not predatory in and are, are not enacting violence against women you know it's the exception it just happens that the exception comes predominantly from men but that's not the same thing as saying that all men or most men are are violent predators and that they can be represented in this way and what princella comes back to on this point when she's challenged online about this is she says that even if the average man isn't going isn't going around enacting sexual violence or physical violence or sexual psychological violence on women they still have the intention or outside the institutions we have in place like the justice system or the informal institutions like society then they would want to do those things you know they would want to be violent towards women they would want to you know take sex from them against their will because that's what they naturally want to do and what i would say to the to, to say to this is you know 
we can't play that game because ultimately what defines who we are and what defines our character are the things that we do in actual life. So many people have negative thoughts, for example, but we're, we're not defined by those negative thoughts that we have. We're defined by the actions that we take. So an example of this is you can get into a disagreement or an argument with a colleague or a friend and in your rage or anger, you can fantasize about hurting them. You can fantasize about punching them or you can think about how you're going to try and get them fired or you can think about how you're going to get them and, and, and ensure they get theirs in some other way. What makes us good people is the fact that we have rational moments and moments of compassion afterwards and think actually... I don't want to do a negative thing to that person that I'm going to choose to take the high road and not do that bad thing. And then we're defined by that. So it's not fair to say that if you have entertained negative thoughts about anybody that you are defined by those negative thoughts. And that obviously applies to men as well. And also note, by the way, that when she posits that most men have have fantasies about violating women sexually well there what where is the data to back that up you know because ultimately it's an assertion that that can't be disproven either way and secondly as i just said where even if that was true which i don't accept is true we're we're defined by the things that we do and like i said obviously most men are not going out enacting violence against against women they're they're just not and on the second theme that priscilla talks about about men having no social intelligence is, you know, most people would agree that that's a contradictory term for this simple reason. So if it's true that men manipulate manipulate women to get what they want out of them, whether it's sex or nurturing or financial resources or other resources of another kind, it obviously requires social intelligence in order for you, for the men to do those things. So If, for example, you dangle what a woman wants in front of her, let's say a woman is aware of her biological clock ticking and she's concerned about having a family, the man can only manipulate that by knowing that social context, knowing that women of a certain age who aren't married but still want to be married and want to have kids are facing a certain level of pressure from society and from themselves, then they need to know that, have that social intelligence in order to dangle that in front of that woman to get what they want from her, whether you know it's the things I talked about like nurturing or sex. So that requires self-awareness. It requires being able to anticipate somebody's needs and to be able to see through them and understand the things that they desire and understand the things that motivate them. Otherwise, if you don't have that self-awareness and if you don't have that that power of discernment when it comes to other people, it's, it's literally impossible for you to manipulate them because you have to dangle something that the person wants in order for you to get them to behave or put another way, to get them to respond to that stimuli or to get them to to respond to that carrot that you're dangling in front of them. So although we don't often interpret that as social intelligence, it it literally is. It's, It's the intelligence to be able to understand social relations amongst people and to use those things, those dynamics to your advantage or to use that understanding to your advantage. And obviously men have have buckets of those things by her own analysis. And also it's important to note that, you know, just because 
something is diabolical or devious, it doesn't mean that it isn't a social intelligence that they are they're using in that moment. You know, they're interpreting the social dynamics between people and obviously using it in a way that serves them. And also around that theme is, especially in what, in some of the discussions that are happening online right now about weaponized incompetence, which is the idea that men basically pretend to not know how to do things to manipulate women into doing those things for them. So for example, you know, men might not want to spend time with their children or do housework, for example. So they'll say like they don't know how to use a dishwasher or the washing machine or do laundry or change a diaper. And the idea is that they're going to be helpless and and frustrate the woman into saying, actually, forget about it. You know, you can't do this thing properly. Let me do it. Let me do it myself, because obviously you're you're not capable. So, you know, they've used that social intelligence in that way. They know that women like to be needed. They know that women like to also feel superior in that moment. And they also know that women have been socially engineered to baby men. And in that moment, they're using that to their advantage to get out of doing things they don't want to do. So again, Again, men have a lot of emotional intelligence. They have a lot of social intelligence. And then the final point to to come to challenge is this idea of men being incapable of love, which is, you know, one of the most inflammatory things that she says. And it's inflammatory, but it's kind of easy to dismiss in a way because most people have the experience of of loving relationships from men. So they've got fathers, they've got brothers, they've got uncles, they've got grandfathers, they've got male friends who they have happy, loving relationships with, who they have seen love from, whether it's love and tenderness in how they speak, whether it's showing thoughtfulness, whether it's showing protectiveness, whether it's showing self-sacrifice, whether it's showing encouragement. Most people have some form of healthy, happy dynamic dynamics from men, you know? And even if they've had negative experiences of men, so if they've come across men who are selfish, non-self-sacrificing, who are unable to put the interests of the relationship or of their families ahead their own interests, again, it's obviously the exception, you know? The majority of people, the majority of men are not people who are selfish and who are just abandoning their children and abandoning their wives and are unable to show tenderness and kindness and love to the people who they are supposed to love you know you know i think most people accept that as well as that you know we all know people men who you know have also experienced heartbreak who've experienced love who've experienced loneliness and loss And to feel those feelings, so you're not going to feel lost if you didn't love the person in the first place. You're not going to experience loneliness if you don't appreciate the companionship that comes from having somebody who cares about you and who's interested in you and who shows you love. And you're not going to have love or be able to experience love if you don't have the capacity to appreciate that love in the first place. And finally, of course, you're never going to experience heartbreak if you didn't love in the first place. And there are a range of emotions that we obviously know men to experience, which points to the fact that, of course, men are capable of love. And only really a person who's speaking from a place of hurt and personal disappointment can make such statements because those statements don't represent the reality that most people have experienced. So those were specific, there are specific rebuttals to the specific argumentation that 
Priscilla talks about. But in general, you know, outside going into the specifics of what Priscilla says, thematically, you can see the fundamental issues in her brand of content. And it's it's twofold. The first is that she she's very prone to using straw man or the straw man fallacy when she's talking. So what she does is that what she does is she takes the average man on the street and she makes him the sum of all the worst parts of humanity. So she says that the average man is violent, manipulative, unintelligent, and predatory. But that's obviously a very biased selection because it's also equally true that the average man is compassionate. It has the capacity for kindness, has the capacity for self-sacrifice and generosity and respect for women and other people. So, you know, that straw man can go both ways. And the fact that she chooses to only choose the negative components, because I don't really think I've heard her say one positive thing about the fundamental character or nature of men, you know? So it's equally true that she could have chosen from all the other components that men can be. And again, most people are, most people have the capacity for a whole range of emotions and ways of behaving. Some are good and some are bad. So one of the things I definitely noticed in the way that she talks about subjects in general is that she often uses straw men. The second thing is that she makes the exception the rule or she makes the the exception be the norm. And this is evidenced when she takes something that applies to maybe 5% of the population and makes it apply or applicable to 95% of the population. And what I mean by this is obviously the selection of men who are violent and in, and and have committed sexual abuse tend to do that over and over again so there can be there can be a perception that it's different men doing these negative things over and over again but really chances are so for example if you take somebody like R Kelly R Kelly is abusing women for decades but he's the same person doing those same things you know it's not as though it's different men who are victimizing his victims so you know what i mean so it ends up or he ends up being being overly represented in the sample size and that's exactly what Princella is doing she's saying that most crimes of violence whether it's sexual or otherwise are committed by men but then she makes that equate to most men are that way and the two don't equate because it might just be that two percent of the population are extremely violent predators and that two percent are mostly men but obviously 98 percent of the population isn't predatory in nature you know so those two things are pretty thematic when you analyze some of the other things that she says you know exception is the rule and then the straw man now after all this is said, what Princella says is, is the solution to this is she advocates for a society of women where men are in a ratio of one to five. So for every one man, there is five women. And the idea behind this is that the reason why men have been able to dominate women and been able to sort of victimize women is because in the natural order of things quote-unquote it really should be women who are the leaders and women who shape how society ends up looking and she says that if we basically call I mean she doesn't say let's call them but it must be implied in what she's saying because otherwise how do you end up having that society unless you call the population she says 
if men were in low enough numbers, it would mean that women, one, would be able to have the leadership positions that they were always naturally supposed to have. And it would mean that men would only be useful in two ways. One, as concubines, and then two, as sperm donors, essentially. And she says that, you know, the violence we see in society would be gone. It would mean that women could choose from the men who have the best behavior and the best genetic material, and that that would result in a in a society that you know is able to imbue men and women with with better values and that would result in a safer world you know existing basically and you know the first thing is the first thing about the solution is it's always it's always disappointing when somebody presents you a problem so they've interpreted the problem as women suffer at the hands of men and women are unable to get the kind of reciprocity they deserve in relationships. And then they offer you a solution that will never ever happen. They say that the only way for women to have happiness is for, you know, the majority of the male population to no longer be there. That's, that's not only is that obviously evil, it's also just never going to happen. And beyond being evil and it being something that's never going to happen, it's also not what most women want. Most women want the companion of men in platonic and and romantic ways. You know, they they don't want to live in a society of of just women, probably, uh, because. You know, again, most people have had positive relationships with all kinds of men, whether it's platonic or romantic. So only somebody who hasn't had that experience could even put forward such a proposition. And the second thing is that this quote unquote solution is so fantastical and so unrealistic that it really implies that she either has no interest in providing real solutions to women's suffering or she has no interest in doing so. That it's more about providing shocking content and clickbait and maybe even seeing what she believes being projected into the world then really solving the issue of you know domestic violence or the unhappiness or a malaise that women feel sometimes in relationships in relationships with men and i've mentioned um or alluded to in the episode that you know, these thoughts come from a very particular kind of person who's had a very particular kind of experience. And when we want to understand why people believe the things that they believe, then it's very in, it's very important to understand the context in which they're operating under. And I think at this point, it's useful to talk about um, Priscilla's context or what I've been able to garner about her context from, from research. And putting on our compassion hat, what becomes obvious is that she's somebody who had a very difficult childhood. So, you know, she came from a family in which domestic violence was present. The father was very abusive. Um, Secondly, her grandmother was also abusive. So she talks about how she was raised by her grandmother because her her mother was working during the day. So her and her brother would spend a lot of time at her grandmother's house until their mother would pick them up in the evening. And sometimes they would stay with her for days. And what would happen is that often the grandmother, because she didn't like 
the, their mother wouldn't treat them the way that she treated her other grandchildren. So she wouldn't feed them. She wouldn't let them inside the house. Many times they would be forced to sleep in the front porch and often they wouldn't be given food for days. Or if they were given food, it wasn't the food that was freshly cooked that day. It was food that was basically just about to be thrown out or food that was just about to be given to the dog. And before she gave it to the dog, after the rest of the family had eaten, after the other grandchildren and the aunties and the uncles and the nieces and nephews had been fed, at that point, the grandmother would offer them offer them food. So, you know, really psychologically abusive and a level of cruelty that obviously is going to shape how somebody how somebody thinks about love in general. And then finally, in terms of her childhood, is that her, her mother was also at first not really able to protect her or protect the family from the domestic abuse that they experienced. She also wasn't able to protect her children from from the abuse that the grandmother doled out. And also in her adulthood, the mother is currently abusive. So she talks openly about how she doesn't have a good relationship with her mother because her mother, in her own words, doesn't like her or doesn't love her or has never been able to show to show her love you know when she had her child for example the mother said that she didn't want to have anything to do with that child her her own grandchild so that gives you a little bit of a snapshot uh, a snapshot of the kind of childhood and experiences really sad experiences that she went through and then moving beyond childhood what also becomes evident from researching and listening to some of the things she said publicly is that she also had a very difficult young adulthood. So she talks about physical violence from a partner where a partner, you know, choked her, um, was aggressive with her, you know, abused her physically in a number of ways. And secondly, that she was also also very financially manipulated by somebody she dated in her early teens and early adulthood and ended up giving something like $40,000 of her college tuition to him because he was able to manipulate her and make her feel that she was essentially investing in him and by investing in him, she was investing in their future. And what ended up happening is that he essentially scammed her for the money and the relationship didn't work out. And because of that financial abuse, she ended up experiencing homelessness a couple of times, two to three times, I think it is. And she never was able to recoup that money. So difficult, very difficult childhood and very difficult adulthood. And she talks about how even in her more in her later years that it really wasn't until up until a few years ago where she started to experience happiness and confidence and she says that she was able to do that because she essentially was able to psychologically cut off men and cut off the people who had brought her who had brought her harm now not to psychoanalyze people but you know as far as I'm aware as far as I've been able to find it doesn't sound like she's been able to have counseling and therapy to deal with what are significantly traumatic experiences that endured for a very long time you know it usually when people experience you know negative experiences in the household at the very least they've got respite because the educational system for example looks out for them or they've got friends in school if they've got relationship they've got they've got somewhere to have a soft landing but it really sounds like she didn't have a soft landing from any of these traumatic experiences and for somebody to go through all these sad 
experiences of course it's only natural to have a lack of positive belief in general you know you're not going to have the perception that people are fundamentally good when you've experienced nothing but physical violence from most of the men whether it's your father or your partners you've only experienced physical abuse then of course it's natural to to have the perception that most men are negative that they're incapable of love that they're natural born predators because literally that's what you have experienced in your life and that's what you know because these things tend to be generational as well there's a very high chance that if she was looking around that other men that are in her immediate circle are also very similar because you know birds of a feather tend to flock together so i personally feel like when you know all these things about princella the queen maker it's very difficult not to have compassion for her because you understand and even as you're listening to those words you know in a quiet moment in the evening when you've when you're digesting your day you can hear the hurt in the words that she's using because only somebody who has been brutalized in many ways can say or make such sweeping statements about half the population and make such extreme sweeping statements like men are incapable of love or they are natural born predators or they have no social intelligence or or generally characterize them as brutes and animals which is some of the language that she uses you know so the the conclusion to this is it's interesting to listen to different outlooks but ultimately you have to know why people believe the things that they believe because then you can understand why they're saying those things and with Priscilla the queen maker you have to take her with a, with a grain of salt because one it's entertainment it's the online online world and obviously pleasant nice things don't get clicks it's things that have dramatic flares or have a shock value that do and secondly obviously she's saying things that we recognize as coming from a place of hurt and it doesn't mean that there aren't elements of interesting analysis that she gives it just means that most of the things that she that she says in regards to love and in regards to relationship in regards to the fundamental nature of of men comes from a place or comes from a person who obviously has gone through a lot of traumatic experiences that naturally taints everything they see in relation to those subjects and then two other throwaway points take it for what it is but i personally think that people's qualifications matter so when princella the queen making the when princella the queen maker is making all these statements about the fundamental nature of men and and she also uses a lot of medical information when she's talking so she talks a lot about the physical makeup of the brain about testosterone levels about uh, the amygdala about you know how physically and chemically men respond to situations so she throws in a lot of medical and scientific information what she's saying and she does that I think to appeal to a sense of authority you know you're supposed to give her authority because she has studied science or scientific subjects but ultimately you know she doesn't have those qualifications you know not not to be not to be that person but it's not as though she's got a psychology degree 
she says she studied molecular cell biology but she doesn't have a qualification for that so she started studying it and then she was unable to complete her studies and we don't know how long she studied that for whether it's a year or three years but either way she didn't graduate she didn't have a qualification for that and she's also not a biologist so she's not really qualified to talk about what happens on the on the chemical or biological level in men's in men's brains or anybody's brains you know so i personally feel like a little knowledge is a very dangerous thing because you are able to use the right terminology to present yourself in such a way that people think that you're an authority figure on a subject but people go to school for years and years and years to be able to fully understand what they're talking about especially when it's really complex things like psychology and sociology and sociology and biology you know there's so much room for error so again Princella the Queenmaker does not have this background, doesn't have this qualification. And that's not to minimize minimize the importance of self-study or the value of self-study or to say that people who don't have qualifications in those fields can't talk about those things. But when you're making life decisions on somebody who who puts themselves forward as somebody who has these backgrounds, but they don't actually have any formal qualifications in any of these subjects, then I think that's pretty important information to know. Because again, making an informed decision means that you know the qualifications of the person and you know, you think to yourself like, it's like if you're following medical advice, you know, I'm not going to follow medical advice from somebody who took two semesters of medicine at school and dropped out. They obviously are still better than somebody who has no training whatsoever. But net net, if I have the choice between choosing somebody who's a qualified doctor and and choosing somebody who's a dropout of medicine, I'm always going to choose a qualified person for my own well-being. And I think when it comes to, you know, taking on things that are going to shift how you operate psychologically and alter the way you engage with people in the world, I think also knowing the person's background is important. And then the final thing is this, and I don't know if this is controversial to say, but I'm, I'm going to say it anyway. So I spent a lot of time listening to the Nation of Islam in my youth. So I've literally listened to hundreds of videos of Louis Farrakhan and various speakers from the Nation of Islam. And I used to be really fascinated with them. And maybe I'll do a part, maybe I'll do an episode on them. I used to be really fascinated by the things that they said and why they said them. Because if anybody knows anything about the nation of Islam is that they also hold really extremist views. And the reason why I even stopped and listened to Prince Hill, the queen maker when I first came across her is because I'm so familiar with the, with the cadence a voice of Louis Farrakhan. So he speaks in a very distinct way. He delivers his speeches and his, and, and his talks in a very particular way. And when I first heard, Princella, the queen maker speaking, that's the first thing that I noticed. I thought, wow, this is really familiar. I have heard that cadence. I have heard that word, that style of speaking. And I am familiar with that sort of extremist thinking of those pseudo-religious, pseudo-scientific ways of, of communicating messaging or ways of trying to persuade the audience by, you know, by sprinkling sprinkling a bit of science, sprinkling a bit of sociology, sprinkling a bit of psychology, sprinkling a bit of pseudo-religion in the things that you say to give them authority. So, and one thing about Priscilla Queen Maker, she says that she does, she does have a background in the nation of Islam. She did spend some time 
actually for a few years in those circles. And I think specifically she dated somebody who was a member of the Nation of Islam. So that also gives you a little bit of background into her propensity to think in a particular way and also on the influences that she's had because you know anybody who knows anything about the nation of islam is they also have pretty extremist views and they communicate in absolute terms you know they say that particular groups of people behave in this way and they make sweeping statements about them and those sweeping statements are often statements that are negative you know they're usually negative and i'm not going to get more specific about that so i'll cover that in another episode but i think that's also an an interesting tidbit to kind of understand um where princel the queen maker is coming from and why she thinks the way that she thinks and what has influenced her to think the way that she thinks so that wraps up today's episode um thank you so much for listening to the episode and if you enjoyed what i was talking about i would really love it if you could leave me a five-star review and if you could leave a comment in the comment section because i would love to hear what you thought you know was i being a pick me was i being overly harsh do you agree with my analysis you know plenty of chats to be had so thank you so much and catch you the next episode